Good morning. It's good to be together. This morning we're continuing through 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Today we're doing verses 13 through 17. Last week we talked about those who were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Christ. We talked about schisms, tears, and so on. So we'll continue here as Paul uh, continues to talk about that issue. I'll read the text, we'll pray, and then I'll proceed to the exegesis of the passages. It says here, 1 Corinthians 1, 13 through 17, I'll read it all. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Then parenthetically, I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. Verse 17, for Christ, Paul says, did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and kindness. And as we explore your word, may we fully understand what you revealed and have confidence in your promises and understand that you will indeed carry us safely all the way to yourself at the end. Thank you, dear Lord Jesus. Amen. Now let's look at verse 13. I'm using the ESV. 1 Corinthians 1.13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, clearly, these rhetorical questions have an implied answer, no. No. You weren't baptized in the name of Paul. And so the real issue that's most important here is the schisms, the tears, the personality cults, and the things that people get into. But secondarily, it raises questions about baptism, and I'll address that uh, briefly as well in this sermon in our applications. Now, the first question, is Christ divided? Uh, Marizo is the uh, word for divided, and sometimes that's used uh, apportioned. Okay, apportioned is another way of saying that. And is Christ divided up so you have this part of Christ, that as part of Christ? Now, the other, that's obviously false, but some uh, scholars have looked at this and said you could also make it an ironic statement Christ is divided? Yikes, that's not good. That's not the way it is. That's not right. So either way, Paul is rebuking their tendency to get into groups that follow personalities and not coming to the unity of the faith as revealed in Scripture. Or in this case, Paul's teaching in that it was revealed as the apostles went out and taught the truth. Now, let me cite one, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 10, 13. 
2 Corinthians 10, 13. You can turn to that. 2 Corinthians 10, 13. So there's this idea of apportioned. Was Christ Marizo apportioned, divided up? It says here, we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. There's our word apportioned. And the way I would understand this is people are assigned portions, but Christ is head over the whole body. So that's why it doesn't make sense. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Peter. I follow this guy. This person baptized me and so on and so forth. This is really the story of church history. But in reality, according to 1 Corinthians, Christ is the head over the entire body. Every person that he saved is important. Every person is attached to the head. We can't make judgments about things we can't know. We don't know who's more important than who else. We don't know that I have really great pious status and somebody else isn't so great. That's going to come up in Corinthians. But the point is, no, no, this isn't right. And so all of this is telling us to learn what we can know that's revealed in Scripture, believe the promises of God, respect the fact that God has saved people and that we're joined to one another as part of the body of Christ. And I really believe that as we go through Corinthians, we'll see that we need one another. We all need Christ, and we need to care for each other and not get into the schismatic personality cults because it's not going to work. It's not God's will. Church leaders cannot give us right standing before God. Only the blood of Jesus washes away our sins. Only God's work of grace can make us right before God. And it will do no good in the end to say, well, I followed this particular church leader. Well, but maybe the church leader taught heresy. Well, that's awful. That's why we have to know what God said. Now let's go to the next few verses where Paul here rejects these false claims by using arguments that are very important. He says here, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say you were baptized in my name. Now, there's a lot of irony. Really, if you're going to understand 1 Corinthians, understand the use of irony. And so uh, Paul literally doesn't remember who he baptized other than the household of Stephanus when he was in Corinth, which was for one and a half years. But he's saying, I thank God that I baptized none of you except for these people and also this other one. But that's not the point. That's not the point. It's not what sort of water. It's not what geographical location. It's not that, uh, well, I was baptized by Billy Graham. 
I don't know if Billy Graham ever baptized anybody. But see, we're looking to gain status based on who we know, who listens to us, who we follow, and not believe that the thing that matters is that we're joined to Christ and our sins are forgiven. And that we died to the old world of sin and death and are made alive to God and we have his promises, it doesn't matter who baptized us. Does that make sense? And that's what Paul is saying. Now I'll make a statement about this. The tendency of Christians to identify with preachers or who baptized them is damaging and must be resisted. We, can't, we cannot gain a theology of baptism from Paul's comments here, which are against schisms. We do not know who was in the household of Stephanus. He's mentioned later, 1 Corinthians 15, 16, 15 to 17, as a leader in a church. And so we're trying to know things that aren't revealed. So some people say, well, see, your baptism saves you. Well, No, because why would Paul say, I'm glad I didn't baptize you if baptism saves you? And some others say, well, you're saved if you're born into a Christian family and baptized as an infant. And we can prove it because Stephanus' household was baptized and he must have had babies. Doesn't say that. We're not getting the point. The point is our faith in Christ is, And his work of grace, his work of bringing us out of the world of death and sin and bringing us to himself, that saves us. And we go from there. Baptism is important, and I'll talk about it in the applications. But what we know has to be found from Scripture alone, not church tradition, not personalities, not feelings, not impressions, None of those things. Scripture alone. Who was in the household? A few people. We're not sure. Servants may have been included. We're not sure. And so we can't make a a doctrine based on what we don't know. That's really a bad idea. In fact, I've been thinking about that a lot. Most of our worries and fears come from taking seriously things we don't know. I hope to talk about that a little bit as I teach Sunday school and I had to introduce um, the idea of Romans fourteen seventeen: the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We're so attracted to what we don't know. What are they thinking about me? Do they like me? Is this happening? Is that happening? Many, many things we don't know. So before we worry about what we don't know, let's focus on what's revealed. And what are the promises of God? And how is he going to keep us? So I'll make a statement and then we'll move on here. The doctrine of water baptism has been confused, abused, and used to create the very type of schisms that Paul rejects. So let's clarify what we know or we don't know and believe what we know God has said. Now, let me give you a few examples. 
in my history of being in the ministry, these doctrines came through. There were people that said, were you baptized with a Trinitarian formula? Because it says in Matthew, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the, some saints would say, yes, I, I came to Christ. We went to the lake. I was baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then they say, well, then you're damned. What? Yes, that's what they say. Well, how do, how do you know that? Well, look at the book of Acts. Every time it says in the name of Jesus only. Well, some people have been influenced by Jesus only Pentecostals. Modalists, which Eric mentioned in Sunday school. And so you have to be baptized in the name of Jesus only. And a non-Trinitarian formula, otherwise you're damned. Well, then that confused people. Well, my goodness, I, I did baptize some people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Still do. And so then, how do we help people? Because the, the wolves are always attacking people. And so that's what's going on in Corinth. Who, who baptized you? Apollos? Peter? That's not the point. And so what I did, and I, in fact, I've done this most of my life as a, as a preacher, is to make sure nobody ever is losing their confidence. I say, by the authority of Jesus' name, I baptize you into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Were you baptized in Jesus' name? Yes. Were you baptized in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Yes. Because I don't want people shaken. I don't say that because I think that's the only thing that will work. Because what's really important is our faith in Christ. And the fact that we're dead to the old world of sin. We're made alive by God's work of grace. And we know Jesus and he loves us and he'll keep us. And yes, modalism is damnable heresy. I don't think it's wrong to baptize people in the name of Jesus. If you believe the Trinity and teach the Trinity. I don't believe it's wrong to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But what's ultimately necessary is to believe in Scripture and to follow the truth. And so... Don't listen to people that tell you that you can't have hope, you can't have assurance, you were baptized in the wrong formula, you were baptized by the wrong preacher, you were baptized in the wrong lake, you were baptized in a swimming pool. That's really bad. No. We were baptizing people for a long time. A friend who's now with the Lord had some lake property, and so we went out there and the trouble is there was no hard bottom. So when you got in just so far, you sink down halfway to your knees in muck. It made it really hard. So you think I was young then? Now, so we look for a place that has a hard bottom. But all of that's beside the point. The point is our faith in Jesus Christ. So let's go to verse 17. This is the key passage we're going to cover today. For Christ did not send me to baptize 
but to proclaim the gospel, not with clever speech, lest the cross of Christ be emptied, emptied. So this isn't proof that baptism isn't important or that it isn't ordained by God and isn't necessary. It's Paul's statement about his priority of preaching Christ. Proclaim the gospel. Literally, euangelizo, uh, it's a verb, a single word. Proclaim the gospel. I thank God that Mike Gendron's coming. That's the name of his ministry. We've heard him before. Clever rhetoric, interesting word in the Greek. Clever speech, literally. Uh, let me, bear with me, I'll just cite some Greek and tell you why you can translate this different ways. Uk and Sophia Lugu, Logu, Logu, in the genitive. Not in wisdom of word, literally, not in wisdom of word. The word logos has a broad range of meaning. It can mean just word. It can mean teaching. It can mean speech. Jesus is called the eternal logos in John 1.1. 1, 1. So how do we translate it here? Well, people have used different ways to say this. But the point is, one's ability to use soaring rhetoric, persuasive words, cleverness, enticing ideas presented in a really great way does not make something true. Doesn't make it true. Proclaim the gospel is what's necessary. Turn with me to Romans 4.14, and we'll look at that. It says here, not with clever speech, lest the cross of Christ be emptied. I chose this translation because emptied is a word, kanao, uh, that means to be taken out of content, removed the content of it. Emptied. Kanao. Romans 4.14. I'm quoting from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. If those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty, kanao, same word, and the promise is canceled. Canceled. The word canceled there could be translated abolished. Wow. So we don't want to empty the gospel by attaching it to different preachers, oratory skill, what's appealing, what's acceptable to the world around us, and soaring words. It's not saying it's a sin to be someone who's eloquent with words. But it is saying that eloquence and persuasive argument isn't sufficient because most cults and heresies have been started by very good speakers. But the words are damnable. Paul tells us that he didn't have that kind of eloquent rhetoric using Greek. Apollos did, but that's not the point. Is it the gospel? Is it the gospel? 
So there it says, lest the cross of Christ be emptied. Emptied and less is a purpose clause. Less, that's what happened. God forbid that what God did through Christ on the cross would lose all of its power, all of its intent, all of its meaning, all of its significance. Because what if the preacher isn't as eloquent, doesn't have the clever rhetoric? What if the preacher comes with halting words, but it's the truth? What if the preacher doesn't look so good, but it's the truth? What if the preacher came from some other country that we don't like? Or some, as Eric was talking about in Sunday school, it's not race, it's Christ. Well, I don't want to hear the gospel unless it's from somebody of this certain uh, heritage. No, it's the gospel. Let me make a statement. Highly sophisticated oratory was prized by the Greeks, but eloquence does not prove the presence of the true wisdom of God. Doesn't prove it. Most successful salespeople are very eloquent, very convincing. Anybody here ever been convinced of something and found out later it wasn't right? Oh, yeah. I used to like to drive uh, in cars, late Buicks from the late 70s, 1977 to 1979, LeSabres all took the same parts. So then when one got too old, I'd strip it. Remember that, Diane? That I'd have this strip car in the garage that I'd stripped everything out. And I'd call somebody and says, we towed junk cars for free. So the guy comes out, he hooks up and says, not much left of this one. Way it goes. Well, then we get another one, and I start swapping over the parts. Well, I decided I got tired of rust, so I found, this was before the Internet, I found somebody that was selling one that had come up from Texas. And it wasn't rusty. And so it comes, and this guy was telling stories, and he was funny, and he knew who, he, he said, name a song that you heard when you were a kid. He could tell, tell you who wrote it and who performed it. So he was this great guy, and he sold a car. Well, then that's the one, Diane was just reminding me, that when it rained, the water came through the windshield, and she had to have a ice cream bucket to catch the water. So Texas has its own problems. But the guy was so persuasive. Oh, it's so great. It's, this is a great car. And, well, it wasn't so great, but I, I made it work. The point is, what is the truth? Don't get taken in by sophisticated oratory that sounds good, but there's nothing to it. And... That's what we want to take from this. Now, let's look at some implications and applications. Gospel preaching and baptism are both about Christ and the promises of God. Christ and the promises of God. Number two, baptism is ordained by God and must be understood biblically. Let's look at Luke 24, 46 through 47. And see there what Christ has sent his apostles to preach and teach and what we need to believe. 
Now, let me give you the background. In Luke 24, we have the story of the road to Emmaus. Jesus is raised from the dead. He, he talks to some disciples, and as they walked on the way, he told them everything about himself from the Old Testament. Now, wouldn't you like to have been there to hear that? Well, we can't go back and hear that, but we know what it is because it's in the New Testament. And as he was going, he eventually says this, Luke 24, 46, 47. And Jesus said to them, uh, Jesus is implied by the context, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So that is revealed truth given by Christ to his disciples. And this explains what happens in Acts. Luke Acts to volume work. This is what Christ said should be done. You would think some things are so clear, nobody could ever doubt it. Like this. Isn't that clear? Well, guess what? Some personality started teaching that the Gospels are not for the church, they're only for the Jews. And the repentance isn't to be preached to Gentiles, only to Jews. And that Repentance has no place in the gospel. And honestly, this came in and just upset all kinds of people in my lifetime. And then we had to try to put out the fires. And so I wrote an article about it. Some of you actually contacted me about it. And I wrote an article refuting that heresy. No, no, no. They say, that's not right. The gospel is only a few verses in 1 Corinthians 15. Don't pay any attention to Luke, and most of Acts isn't for the church either. So how do you tell somebody that's wrong? And so I tried, I worked. No, Luke, Acts is a two-volume work written by Luke, who was a companion of Paul. It's inspired by the Spirit, and it's for the church. Luke Acts is not written just for the Jews. We can safely ignore it. That's a lie. Anything, I don't care how clear it is, how biblical it is, how obviously true it is, somebody will say, no, that doesn't work. It's not right. It's only for the Jews. I remember talking to a pastor. We were standing right over here, late 2000s. And he said, well, Somebody from the church where he was a pastor had gotten this teaching that the Gospels aren't for the church. And you know what he told me? He started debating the person in his church who had heard all this. And the source in this case was a guy by the name of Les Feldig. And so we're sitting right here. <laughs> I'll never forget. And he says, well, I debate with this. The lady who was telling me this. And she says, well, I have to get back to you. And then she called Les Feldick. They get back to the pastor and say, well, Les Feldick says. And then he'd say, well, no, that's not right. Well, I got to call Les Feldick. So she, the pastor's debating Les Feldick through a lady who's following Les Feldick. 
That's not how you get to the truth. The truth is revealed in Scripture. Did Luke want us to believe that what Jesus said to his disciples is not for us? No. The absurdity of this should be obvious to say it's not for us. And it's hard to get people away from these things once they believe it. What about the forgiveness of sins? Does that have any place? Well, yes. And that's thematic in Luke Acts. Should we proclaim repentance? Is that part of the gospel? Yes. It's throughout Acts. And so, in fact, turn with me to Acts 26, 15 to 18. Let's just drill down on this a little bit. We've got time to do it. The key issue is the facts about Christ as the Messiah, fully human, fully God, the virgin-born Son of God, the creator of the universe, coming into our world, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection. Luke 9.22, keep looking for Acts 26.15. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and on the third day, raised. That's Luke 9.22. So there's a preview there. It's summarized again, Luke 24. Did it change? No, it did not. Have you found it yet? Acts 26, 15 to 18. Let's see how all the way through it's the same message. Context, Paul tells about his call. Remember, we're studying God did not call me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That's what Paul said. So Paul, before Agrippa, secular ruler, tells about his call and commission directly from Jesus, which happened on the road uh, to persecute Christians. That's in Acts 9. Okay, Acts 26, 15 to 18. So I said, who are you, Lord? Now he's telling about his conversion. Jesus confronted him. He was breathing out threats, slaughters. I'm going to kill these Christians. Here's Jesus. He tells the story. Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. When you persecute Christians, you persecute Jesus Christ himself. Continuing. But get up and stand on your feet, because for this reason... Jesus told Paul, I have appeared to you to appoint you a servant and witness both to the things which you saw me and to the things which I will appear to you. Jesus appeared to Paul, gave him direct teaching from Jesus. So he's an apostle. Rescuing from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. Verse 18. Look at this to open their eyes so that they may turn, which is a synonym for repent, may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins. And and a share, there's a, a different word for portion, kleros, a share, a portion, among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So, Look at the unity of Luke Acts. Repentance for forgiveness of sins. 
Jesus told the disciples. Jesus appears to Paul, repentance for forgiveness of sins. Paul, before Agrippa, a secular ruler, told him the same thing. Repentance, turning, forgiveness of sins, deliverance from Satan, coming to God through Christ. It's all there. And so somebody says, no, 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 it's just for the Jews. Okay, where did it start not being for the Jews only and for everybody? Well, we don't know. Maybe Acts 27. Oh, we're in 26 here. No, maybe it's Acts 9. No, maybe it's here. There's no answer. This sort of teaching is the very type of schism that Paul's warning against. There's unity. Now, he didn't stop there. Let me read some more. Acts 26, 19 to 20. To Agrippa. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but to those in Damascus first and in Jerusalem and all the region of Judea and to the Gentiles, I proclaim that they should repent and turn to God doing deeds worthy of repentance. The deeds are what demonstrate They've repented because they don't live like the devil anymore. Now they're serving Christ. They're no longer, no longer in the domain of darkness. They're in the light of Christ. So how could it be that there's two different gospels? There is, that's just false. He proclaimed this in Jer- elsewhere, Jer- Jerusalem. Remember, Jer- Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. God changed lives. God delivered people. God forgave sins. People turned to Christ. So my point is, believe the promises of God. Make sure you understand the word of God. And don't listen to personalities with their unique, weird doctrines just because they're good at telling it. Let's go to uh, Acts 2.38. Now we're going to talk about baptism in, in this context. Acts 2.38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, I mentioned that earlier. For the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That was preached by Peter, who received his commission directly from Jesus Christ. Baptism is ordained by God. Jesus Christ commissioned this. And that's what he preached. Now, in the context, Peter had already preached about the facts, that they were witnesses to facts. We did not follow cleverly devised tales, he said later in his epistle. We were eyewitnesses. They saw what God did. They saw the resurrected Christ. They were appointed by the resurrected Christ. They were there when he gave the Great Commission. They were witnesses to his bodily ascension into heaven. They heard that he would come back in the same way. Why stare ye into the heavens? Because this one will come back the same way he left, bodily. Where did... Christ go to the right hand of God. Psalm 110 and verse 1. What does he do at the right hand of God? 
he ever lives to make intercession for us. He cares for us. He hears our prayers. He's given us promises. His ascension is part of the proof that Jesus was truly the Christ. If you want to turn there, go to Acts 2. We'll read 32 to 36. Let's get to context. Acts 2, 32 to 36. says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, allusion to Psalm 110 by verse 1, that's my comment, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you yourselves are seeing and hearing. That was the fulfillment of Joel, that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all flesh, not just the Jews, not just some people, but all who believe. For David has not ascended to heaven, verse 34, into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Citation of Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand, place of honor, authority, and dignity, until... I make your enemies your footstool. Even that was been abused. The dominions say Jesus can't come back. Have you heard that doctrine? Held in the heavens until. Until what? Until the church defeats his enemies. Is that what it says? No. The Lord said to my Lord, until I make your enemies your footstool. And so we got people. I heard from a pastor in Israel said that dominionists are going to Israel and troubling the saints and telling them that the tribulation is going to come and they're going to be the prophets like Elijah that are going to defeat Antichrist. These people that are full of themselves, that's what they're claiming. Anything in the Bible can be confused, but it's not that hard. We just take it for what it says. God defeats the enemies. And the details are laid out in the New Testament. So the point is, Jesus is enthroned, and he's there until then he comes, defeats the enemies, and restores the kingdom to Israel, as asked earlier in Acts. Now listen. We've got to believe what it says. The point is this. If this Jesus, they said, Peter, Paul, whoever you are, if this Jesus is the Christ, why did he die? What kind of Christ is defeated by the pagan Romans? Doesn't sound like the Messiah we want. Well, what's the answer to that? He's ascended into heaven and he reigns in heaven. He'll do the defeating of the enemies of Israel later. So, That's answering their question. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, who crucified Christ? Sinners, Gentiles, Jews. We have no king but Caesar. The Romans were there. They mocked him. The guards took money to lie about it. Guilt is universal. Forgiveness is for those who believe. And so Peter 
said this Jesus will be crucified. Verse 37. Notice what happened. Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Why were they cut to the heart? Why were they convicted? What made them ask the question, what shall we do? What shall we do? Because the Holy Spirit convicted them of their sin. And he used the, what Paul ironically called the foolishness of the message preached. And they were convicted. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, at some point, whether you can name the time or not, you were cut to the heart. Maybe you trusted religion. Maybe you trusted money. Maybe you trusted anything that you can imagine is not going to do you any good. But when you hear the gospel preached and the Holy Spirit convicts you, you're cut to the heart. I'm a sinner. I failed God. I I refused to believe. I lived for Satan. I did not do what is God's will. I remember the very moment I was cut to the heart, just like it says, verse 37. And I was just hostile to Christianity, too. And you know what I asked? Well, what should I do? Well, you're supposed to pray. Okay. And I knew it was all true. I knew if I didn't repent, I'd go to hell, and it was only right. I knew that in an instant. And the date for that, you don't have to know a date, but I know mine, July 18th, 1971. And that's almost 50 years. But that's not the point. The point is that Jesus Christ is who he claims to be. What shall we do? Repent, verse 38, it's up on the slide. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. I repented. I was baptized. This is an ordo salutis, but all those who are born of God have received the Spirit, and that is what we need to do today. Think about it. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? One more slide. Colossians 2, 12 and 13. By way of review, I preached through Colossians a few years ago. But this is what is signified by baptism. Not loyalty to a sect or a person or a personality or a nationality, but dead sinners buried and made alive in Christ. Colossians 2, 12 and 13. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. Here again we have the forgiveness of sins. Any kind of sect, group, philosophy, mass of people, we hear about people movements, that has nothing about forgiveness of sins is worthless. No assurance of salvation. 
worthless. False assurance of salvation, worthless. True assurance based on faith alone, in Christ alone, and belief in his promises is where we gain assurance of the forgiveness of sins. Let's unpack this a little bit. Having been buried with him in baptism. Here's a statement I think we can take with us. Only the dead are buried. You don't want to bury the alive. We were dead. Okay. And when we're baptized, we're acknowledging the reality that we left Egypt, we left the old sin behind, and we buried the old man who was dead in Adam, and now we're alive in Christ. With is important here. The, in the Greek, notice it says with him, buried with him, raised with him, alive together with him. The with is important. And these are all things that God did. We were Buried. We were made alive. Who? God made us alive. What does it look like to be made alive? You believe the promises. You know Christ. You have assurance. Your sins are forgiven. Let me make a statement about this. In baptism, we, by faith and spiritually, participate in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Our faith is in God's powerful working that was demonstrated once for all in the resurrection of Christ. Therefore, we believe that God's power will raise us to new life in Christ. So you can be baptized as a dead sinner, have no faith in Christ, and still you're a dead sinner. Baptism doesn't make you alive. Christ does. And those who believe in the gospel and are baptized are symbolically saying the old life is behind me. I was dead. I'm burying the old man. He died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, or to bring me to God. As you come up out of the water, there's a statement, a promise of God made alive together with him new life in Christ. That's true because of what God did for you. Not what kind of water, not who did the baptism, not anything but what Christ did. We were all dead sinners. It says in Ephesians 2.1, you were dead. But God makes dead sinners alive. When we're baptized, we are reminded of our previous hopeless situation, dead. But we're also reminded of the promise of God, made alive, made alive. Eternal life, not just a better life now, not just happier now, not just, well, I have less problems now. That, that will not work because you're going to get old or maybe the Lord will return before that. But eventually, it gets harder and harder to solve problems. I know I'm the only one that's ever experienced that. But it's true. 
It gets harder and harder to solve problems the older you get. Things that were easy now become difficult. Something that I could have done without even thinking about, it's a big victory if I do it at all. I went out and there's an old boat seat and the swivel went bad and, and somehow I had installed it 30 years ago and I figured out the parts and went out there, pulled it apart, got a swivel, got it installed, figured out how I did it, made it better, got it in, came in and told Diane, I installed a boat seat. The old man can still do it. When I was young, I just did it and went out fishing. But that's not our hope. Our hope is not your best life now. It's what Christ did for us. Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in the resurrection from the dead. Our hope is in the promises of God. And so we were sinners. We did rebel, but God forgives sinners. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Here's a preview of something I'll get to some years from now when we get to 1 Corinthians 15. As in all Adam, all die, also in Christ shall all be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. What does it require to be dead in Adam? They're taught on it in Sunday school. You just have to be somebody who descended from Adam, which is all people. What does it mean to be in Christ? How do you become in Christ? By regeneration. I say it this way. Natural generation means we're in Adam. Supernatural regeneration is how we're in Christ. So those who have been regenerated by the power of God, who have turned to Christ, who are trusted, trusting Christ, their sins are forgiven. They've been graced. That's what the word here says. They're right with God. They have eternal hope. And they should not be shaken from their confidence. Now, let me make a statement that I I hope will bring encouragement to all of us. Frankly, it's been a very long time since I've seen so much shaking going on around me, uh, both amongst Christians and non-Christians. People are edgy. They're angry. They're afraid. They're rude. Um, just going to buy something at the store, you don't know what's going to happen. I had several things happen just going to get that swivel I was telling you about for the boat. I'm standing there, finally found it to pay for it, and some guy comes in. He's just blowing up, and he was yelling at me, and I'm, okay, standing here, I got my mask on. Why is he mad? So he would cut through, and the guy in front of, guy in the, uh, his wife in front of me, which were, Older people, older than me, and that's getting old, said, oh, that guy's nuts. He was fighting with the employee earlier. Something's wrong with him. Oh, okay, it wasn't me. So then I get in the car, and I get out. I'm, there's two ladies going left. I get in one of them. All of a sudden, I hear honk, 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 honk. And a, and a lady comes around, rolls her windows down, honking at me. I'm, okay, I'm in the wrong lane. There's a lane here, a lane there, people here. What's the, what am I, what's going on? And it's just like that. People are on edge. They're ready to blow up. And that's just what's going on now because of the disease that's been going around, ideas, fears. And so here is what I have on my heart to share with you. 
our hope is in Jesus Christ, that he's been raised from the dead. We're trusting his promises. He promised to bring us to heaven to be with him. He's given us the gift of eternal life. Our sins are forgiven. And the challenge to me, and I believe to every Christian, is when the whole world is unstable, can we be stable? Can we have the fruit of the Spirit? Can we have love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness? It's a battle, but we need to have it. And I can't figure out why that guy was yelling at me other than the people in front said, well, he's nuts. He was yelling at everybody. But what if they didn't tell me that? I just have to trust in Christ. I'm standing here. Why, why are they mad? We can't figure these things out. Why is that lady mad? I still haven't figured that one out. All I can know is I'm in the right lane. Okay, that's the way it is. Here's our challenge. May God give us the power to be the stable people, gospel-preaching people in an unstable world. May we lay aside what we don't know and can't figure out and cling to what we do know. Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. My sins are forgiven. God is not going to leave me or forsake me because of what he did for me in Christ. That's true for you if you believe in him. If you have not yet believed on Jesus Christ today, turn to him, believe in him, trust in him, and trust in him alone. You will have forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life. So as we say that, I want to close in prayer and then we'll have benediction. Thank you, dear Lord, for your kindness and goodness to save sinners. Thank you, Lord, that you made us dead sinners who believe in you, alive from the dead. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us magnificent, precious promises that by these we may be assured and certain that you will keep us and bring us to glory when we die. And we thank you, Lord. I pray for the world that we live in, the leaders as you instructed us. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for governors, authorities, presidents, kings who all in authority as you've instructed us to do. Pray for the church that we may be confident and stable. And I pray, Lord, that you'd fill our lives with the fruit of your spirit by your grace. And we thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.